Yeah, every single day. The combination of the two is like two gladiators having a fight in the Colosseum back in the day on a consistent basis. Like every single day is a struggle. You wrapped it up nicely though. You've got the the autism side that wants to be sort of like, you know, have structure, have routine. But then you've got the ADHD side that the only way I can describe ADHD to neurotypical people is it's like my brain is a TV and somebody else is constantly flicking the TV channels over, like all the time. On today's episode of the Unconventional Podcast, I sit down with Danny Townley. Now, Danny and I have been connected for a while through social media, but it wasn't until I sat down with him on this particular conversation that I realized how inspiring his journey really is. He is a LinkedIn social revamp master. Um, From LinkedIn limp to profile Viagra is uh, what's stated across his LinkedIn profile. Um, And if you've ever seen one of Danny's banners, you'll know exactly where that catchphrase comes from. Um, Diagnosed with ADHD and autism in adult life, someone that uh, inspires me on my own neurodiverse journey. Um, So I hope you get as much from this podcast as I did. Morning, Danny. How's things? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's it's good to finally get you on and uh, after a few full starts. Yeah, we're here finally, dude. Uh, I'm noticing that you've got a Deadpool mask behind you. Yeah, well, I've got Deadpool and... Oh my God, he's got Hulk as well. And what I did is I'd created the cartoon drawings and decided to set up an Etsy store to create these cushions and then found out that I can't do it because it's illegal. So I had two samples made and that's it. (laughs) Illegal because of copyright or some sort of, yeah... Do you know what? I guarantee you there's people all over the place doing that, though. Oh, so many people doing it. I've bought stuff from there for for gifts for people on LinkedIn. Um, Yeah, 100%. But I'm that guy, dude, who would try it out and I'd get sued. So (laughs) You've got a conscience, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, which isn't a bad thing. Um, Danny, it's, it's great to have you on. Obviously, you and I have been... Um, connected through social media for quite some time now, um, and I've I've kind of followed your journey quite closely because you recently kind of did something that I think probably changed your entire outlook, not only on life but probably on yourself and the way you go about life. Um, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But just and we've already discussed how much you hate doing these things. But just for the benefit of the podcast, just just give us a, a very very brief snapshot of you and kind of what you're doing right now okay it's like i said to you earlier i really struggle to answer this question um maybe it's an nd thing but there's so much going on in my head but in a snapshot i accidentally started my business on linkedin through having a car crash started out building linkedin banners and now i built a, a little team behind me and we focus more on the LinkedIn landing page and soon to be content that people put out on LinkedIn as well. That's in a nutshell, dude. Wow. That that is that is a nutshell. But I think I think it will naturally evolve over time. What I guess the reason I really wanted you on, um, and we'll kind of 
we'll we'll highlight it now and then we'll kind of go back to earlier years in terms of where it started and where uh, and perhaps where some of the struggles were you recently uh through i believe a, a private um diagnosis because you and i have spoken about this already um realized that uh you were neurodiverse yes um tell us a bit about when you first started to think to yourself this is an avenue i want to explore what was going through your mind so it it was actually um linkedin i i was resonating with a a certain guy's um piece of content like i'd read his stuff and i'd think shit this guy's speaking in my language and the more that i saw his videos and the way he articulated himself the more i was intrigued so i'd reached out we had this conversation and i found out he was diagnosed with autism a couple of years ago so i thought shit this is strange and then he'd sent me to like the back end of his website where he'd written specific blogs to do with autism, like raising awareness to neurotypicals, helping neurodivergent people out. And the more I read, I thought, this is me. Like, th- th- this is me down to a T. So I'd reached out to him. We'd been speaking for a short while and he'd sent me a quiz. I think it was called like the Aspie quiz. And I filled it out and it came back straight away. You are very highly likely Aspie. So I was like, okay. And I, I went down several rabbit holes over the course of like three weeks. And I thought, shit, this is 99% of who I am. And I sort of had this like life-changing epiphany moment um, of where everything made sense. Because prior to this, I thought I'd just been dropped on the wrong planet. I I didn't know how to make sense of the world, dude. So I was confident enough to self-diagnose with autism. However, that 1%, not knowing that 1%, I thought I need the certainty behind this because I was second guessing. There was times where I thought I could be wrong. And then I was introduced to a lady in Ireland who did the private diagnosis and very cheap compared to like UK prices and she did it over Zoom call as well and this must have been about six months after filling out that first quiz so it was quite a long wait time Mm. and yeah during our our conversation it it became apparent that it was both autism and ADHD which I didn't expect the latter because I always assumed it was that kid at school who was like wild out there naughty Mm. little shit but it was me. You can be, you can still have ADHD because I can't remember the name for it now, but it's more like inside the head. So you don't really show it on the outside. It's more you have this like brain mm. that works at a million miles per hour and it never switches off. So mm. yeah, that was my journey there, dude. What, what I find interesting is, and, and we, you and I spoke a few months back um, when I was doing a similar thing. So I'd done the, the online test. Um, and then I spoke to yourself and Rebecca Pay, um, and uh, you'd put me in touch with the lady that obviously you spoke to. I've actually emailed her, um, but it was kind of a few months back, and then I never did anything with it because I was sort of battling with it myself. Um, do you find, and I, I, like I said, I, I want to kind of journey back in, in a minute just to kind of get a sense of what it was like when you were younger, but... Do you find that having both 
I often say to my wife, who is convinced that I am on the spectrum, because she recognises the signs, because obviously of my son. Um, and she works with um, other autistic people in a school setting now. Do you? I say to her, I often feel like ADHD is fighting autism. And what I mean by that is if you've got both, you you kind of, you want to be crazy structured and organized and, and rigid um, of an autistic person that has to have everything the same and is structured and organized and routine. But then the ADHD kind of kicks in and goes, no, fuck off. I'm not, I'm not letting you do that because I'm going to, I'm going to fight that. And that's like, I said to someone the other day that when, when I think you, you have those things in you, you, you have to mentally work twice, three times harder than someone that's neurotypical just to achieve the same result. So you get mentally exhausted a lot. Would you say that's right? Yeah, every single day. The combination of the two is like two gladiators having a fight in the Colosseum back in the day on a consistent basis. Like every single day is a struggle. You wrapped it up nicely, though. You've got the the autism side that wants to be sort of like, you know, have structure, have routine. But then you've got the ADHD side that the only way I can describe ADHD to neurotypical people is... It's like my brain is a TV and somebody else is constantly flicking the TV channels over, like all the time. And yeah, the the ADHD side of it, like people say it's a blessing and a curse, but for me, it's been a curse. Like every day is a single, uh, every day is a, a struggle. I don't know how it's going to map out. There's maybe two days in a week where I'm in the flow, but the rest of it, I'm distracted. Uh, I lose focus, but it seems to be on autopilot. There's many of days where Emma say like, oh, how's your day been? And I'm like, I'm fucking pissed off because I had this list of things to do, but I never achieved it. And it shows in all areas of my life, whether that be failing at school, but being told by my teachers that I was smart or the fact I've had 28 jobs since leaving college. You know, it's, it's such a curse, dude. I don't care what anyone says. It's... <sighs> Do you know what that that leads us nicely in actually because you've mentioned there the twenty eight jobs and I don't know if that was a, an actual number or an an exaggerated number but it, an actual number. Um, tell us about let, let's let's kind of go back right to if you can remember. Not not that I'm saying you're old because um, you're certainly not not in my in my bracket. Um, let's let's take you back to school prior to you having any diagnosis or any real understanding of what neurodiverse was because you you it just wasn't a thing as much as it is obviously now it wasn't spoken about can you remember those those times at school and and, and struggling and then looking back now because you know what you know and thinking oh my god that makes more sense now yeah 100% um, i mean during school it because school's very social, especially the school that I was at, it was a huge school. You know, you have like your group of friends. And what I found is all my group of friends could speak to the other groups of friends. But me, I was just in my circle. And if it came to anybody else, I couldn't have that conversation. 
it it was like I had severe anxiety. The 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 thought of like how do I present myself? What do I say? I don't know anything about this particular person, so I have nothing in common, and I can't do small talk. So, yeah, when I look back, what I thought was anxiety. It actually wasn't. It was just having that challenge socially, not knowing how to start a conversation. We didn't mm. have anything. We, we couldn't relate. So, yeah, there, there, there was many of things. Um, I laugh I laugh back now thinking about some of the stuff, like the, the, the fact that there was girls that fancied me, but I couldn't pick up on it. I didn't know if they did. The only way I'd understand if they said, hey, Danny, I really fancy you. <laughs> But that never happened back in the day. So they would make it blatantly obvious. My friends would agree and say like, oh, she likes you a lot. And I'd be like, no, she doesn't because she's not told me. Like there's no signals there. So yeah, the one side of it was like the social interaction. But the, the, the other side of it was like not being able to pick up on these signals that everybody else could do easily. So it was so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. When you when you kind of went on then to college you've kind of reached that point where obviously you're into your teens hormones have kicked in because one of the things that that Linz and I talk about all the time with Jake who's 10 is that he he is a certain way now and we've got used to managing uh, a lot of uh, his behaviors and, and making sure that we cater for him within reason because we've got two sons and they're completely different, and we have to try and cater for them both. Um, but we know that when he reaches 12, 13, 14, everything's going to change again. Um, because we've seen it, yeah, we've seen it in our nephew, who's 17 now, and he's basically a, a grown-up version of Jake. But at my sister-in-law, she basically said the second he hit kind of puberty, if you like, it changed again. Um, did Did... How did you? How did that impact you as you kind of went into the later school years and then into college? What what changed? I can't really think to like particular things that change. I, I know like you know I'll be I'll be very blunt with this stuff. Like my friends started to form relationships with other girls. Uh, like they were doing the things that everybody else spoke about, but I didn't know how to do this stuff. I really didn't. I didn't know how to have a relationship with a girl. Um, if I understood who I was back then, I would have just put my hand up and said, yeah, I'm a full-on misfit. This is why I'm different. Let's form a relationship. Because I didn't know. It, I don't know. It was really difficult. I, fa- I found myself jumping from groups of friends to groups of friends, especially in college years. And that's because... People were doing amazing things. They knew what they wanted to do. They were forming relationships with other girls. They was traveling the world, having lads holidays. But I didn't know how to do all of this stuff. Mm. So I, I, I tend to sort of merge with the the misfits, the the, the bad people. And I, I don't know why that was. I think it's for, for two reasons. I couldn't keep up with the people who had the shit together. And on the back end, I really enjoyed helping people who needed my help. So what I'd probably find is I'd merge together with a group of misfits who probably do the wrong things in life, the guys who failed at school, the guys who have bad parents. And I just found comfort in being able to talk to them people on a real level. And I've been like that since a little kid. 
I mean, my grandma and granddad always used to say, since you've been a little toddler, you've always been polite and you've always preferred to speak to the elderly than people your age. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I found myself. I couldn't keep up with the guys who I was friends with in school. And I found myself mm. merging towards the people who needed support in life, but that mm. had like a that backfired on me massively. So do you, we'll come on to that in a second. Do do you think do you think that you gravitated towards those people because they didn't judge you as much? Would would you think there was something in that? Yeah, I, 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 it, it's really hard to explain. Um, throughout my life, since being a kid at school. I've always been the guy when somebody's had a problem, it seems to be where I excel. I can talk to people in a different language. I can understand them. And I've helped many of people out. So I don't know. I think one element is I couldn't keep up with them. And they were out of my league. But the other side is like the natural thing for me is to support people. Um, and, And because this sort of group of friends was miles ahead and these people were behind... I'm like, you know what, this guy, he is a really good guy. He means well. He wants to do all this for me, but he has this problem, he has that problem, and he has this problem. So I don't know what it is. I'm not sure. I'm a big believer that you attract like for like in life. So it could well be that these people had ADHD or autism, but they wasn't diagnosed, and they was in a much worse position than what I was. I don't know. But I found that in later years, now all the close people in my life are neurodivergent. know. You mentioned earlier about it. It it turned out to be, um, or it, you went for a period, I guess, where those choices of who to be with backfired. Um, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you how you got through it. I don't know. I don't know where to start with this. It's a very very long story. It, you know, it all stems from the roots of of me being a kid and. I'm a big believer now that my mum is autistic. So I've got a, a stepbrother with another dad. Um, we've both got Asperger's. Um, his dad is neurotypical. My dad is neurotypical. And my mum is very similar to me and Callum. So growing up, what that meant is, obviously, I was autistic. I'm 99.9% sure my mum is, but she doesn't want to put herself out there and find out. But you imagine an autistic parent growing up, they had a lot of triggers. And during that time, I just thought my mum was strict as shit. Like compared to all my other friends, she was nasty. Like I won't go into detail on the podcast, but she did some horrible stuff that I've had to have therapy about like in the last couple of years. So what that meant growing up, um, especially when I'd left college, I never wanted to be at home. So I was always out till early hours. I had my own car. This is where I, I sort of merged with the misfits. And I'd, I'd, every weekend we'd be going to like car shows, like looking at the nice cars. And I'd be getting back really late and it would wake my mum up and she'd be really angry with me because like tea would be in the microwave. I've not gone home to have tea with the family. It's like half 12 at night and she can hear like ping, tea's ready. And an accumulation of this happening over the course of like several months, it just triggered something. And 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 she basically lost the shit and she was like, right, I want you out the house. Um, and I had nowhere to go at the time. And I thought this needs to happen because I don't get on with my mum. So 
I remembered leaving my mum's place and I moved in with my auntie on my dad's side. Now, talk about a rough side of the family, dude. Oh, my God. It's a, it's a massive family. And especially her particular sons, so rough. I ended up living with them. And, and what happened is I lost my job. Um, I started taking drugs. And it got to a point where I had to do bad things to make money, which I'm not going to talk about here. Things that I still regret to this day. I sold my car. Before I sold my car, I'd had enough. My life had flipped upside down. I couldn't even walk down the street without being scared of seeing somebody who I knew from like growing up with. And I thought, holy shit, like my life has flipped upside down. I was taking drugs. I was getting involved with really bad things, stealing to earn money to be able to pay for a takeaway. And I thought, this isn't right. So at the time, my first car was a really nice Vauxhall Corsair. Ended up selling that. I had a £200 maroon P-Reg Ford Escort 97. And I lived in that for two weeks. I lived wow. in that for two weeks because I needed to escape my cousins and their friends and, and, and their life. And I, this was like a pivotal moment in my life. And I just needed to be away from it. I needed a plan. And my friend in Blackpool who had just moved there, we, we were speaking on the phone. And I'm not one to share my feelings because I struggle with it. But I said, look, dude, this, this is where I am right now in life and it's really bad and it's going to get worse. I don't see a way out. He'd spoke to his mum and they happily let me move over to Blackpool. So I'd gone from like taking drugs, stealing, doing bad things, which wasn't me, to then moving to Blackpool. I got a job as a chef and... I met a girlfriend at the time. I'd flipped my life upside down. But because I was so ashamed of what I'd done, I didn't see my family, not even my grandparents, who I loved to pieces. Mm. And I remember on a particular day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to see my grandma and granddad. And I just moved to Blackpool at this stage. So I, I, I was due to start the job. And I remember walking into the house and the first thing that my grandma said to me is, you look like a crackhead. And I was like, oh shit, like this is bad. But from moving there, I'd, I'd moved away from these bad people and I'd, I'd created a much better life. But yeah, long story there, but I've tried to skim through it as fast as I could. But that was like a big pivotal moment mm. in my life because I could have easily turned into somebody who takes drugs um, I believe I never would have because I've got that strong mindset, but I was right on the edge. It took me to live in a Ford Escort for two weeks for me to change my life. So, mm. yeah, it was. And I, I think a big part of that is, one, because I felt lost. I didn't know I was autistic. I didn't know why I was different. And my mum was so strict. But thinking back now, it's blatantly obvious to why. If if I imagined myself as a parent in her shoes with the son that I was, I'd lose my shit. Like, I get mad when Emma snores in bed. So I can't even imagine my kid coming in at half 12 at night, like warming the food up. I'd just be like, oh, this is, this is crazy. So, yeah, it's been them years of my life was crazy. Um, mm. And I'm shit at storytelling. There's a lot more to it than that. I think there's there's if if people going through that now 
in their teenage years, in their kind of early 20s, going through a similar thing to you, trying to make sense of life or to listen to this, I think it would really resonate. And what I find incredible really is that you went through that because I didn't. You know, the reality is I think everyone loves everyone kind of resonates or, or a lot of people resonate with a, a story of real hardship um, which people like yourself and others that I've met along the way have, have really been through you know compared to my upbringing where ugh, the worst thing I ever did was talk too much in school and my mum had to go and see the headmistress every now and again like I had an amazing set of parents yeah I, I, I mucked about a bit and, and went out at night and stuff like that but I I kind of I had a great upbringing and parents and all the rest of it so I I I struggle to really appreciate what people like you have gone through in that time and the reason I find it so incredible that you've then managed to do what you now do is because you've kind of gone from the brink to turning your life around to being successful in what you do you've got a great relationship with Emma you've obviously formed that and you've been together quite some time what was it do you think that when you went to your friends and 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 his mum said yep Danny can come and stay with us what 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 was the one thing you think that that triggered you to go right I'm going to flip this it, no, it was straight away. It was survival instincts. That's what it was. I need. I knew that I needed to be away from Blackburn where I lived. I could have easily moved away from my cousins, but the state of mind that I was in, I, hang, I had anxiety at the thought of seeing the people who I went to school with, these people who I had really good friendships with. So I needed to get out of Blackburn, even though like Blackpool's 25 miles away. It was a new start. So as soon as this opportunity came about, um, my friend lived in a really nice area in Blackpool. It wasn't central. It was a place called Bispam. It was right near the seafront. And there was practically a job there waiting for me. So it, 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 it wasn't a matter of should I do this? It's I have to. Mm. I have to do this to be able to fix myself, to move mm. away from these bad people. I don't know what what knowledge you have of it, but when I when I listen to your story, I think about teenagers and and you know young people going through similar experiences now in schools. And although there's a lot of awareness around neurodiversity in social media, because obviously you and I have been exposed to it, and it's it's one of the biggest influences behind why you went out and and sought the support that you did. But most people at that sort of age aren't being exposed to those positive influences around the way they do the thing, what they do and, and, and life. Um, so do you think more needs to be done at school and education level to kind of help people, young people? Yeah, it's hard in my mind because you know yourself, like, even if we just use autism alone, never mind like, you know, Tourette's, bipolar, the, the other ND stuff, autism alone is very complex. And if you had a system in place of people who knew how to support people on the spectrum, how would that look like? It, 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 
it'd be too big, it'd be too complex. It's not a matter of having one support peer in a school to to help a group of people on the spectrum. It's, I don't know, I don't, I can't see new or diverse people being supported in the current educational system. I just, I can't see it unless every single individual had a support peer working with them who knew everything about them. You know, maybe having a support peer um, amongst a group is a step forward, but it's not the solution. I think what it really stems down to is the, the, the parents, because it seems to be a generational thing about people on the spectrum. Like when my mum was a kid, it wasn't a thing. Um, you was just seen as being that awkward, shy kid who had something wrong with them. And like even to this day, she's still got that mindset. She's still got that built inside her. She said to me, I know I'm probably autistic, but I don't want to look into it. And I'm thinking to myself, if you look into it, you're going to have a lifetime of answers. Um, she still struggles now. So I think the, the, the biggest problem is, or challenge is educating the parents um, because they've come from a place of this was never a thing and I remember when I had my diagnosis and I said to my mum, like, I was so happy, dude. I was so proud. Everything made sense in my life. I could have cried. And I, I said, like, you know, I was on video call with my mum and stepdad and I was like, I've had diagnosis. It all makes sense. And she said, yeah, um, it makes sense to me. You was always a bit different. And that was it. And I thought, you can have the right support at school, but if that's what you're going to have with your parents, then... That there lies the problem and mm. uh, the, the challenge. So mm. yeah, I think it it's more swayed with parents than school. How's your relationship now with your mum? <sighs> it's tough. Um it's really tough because I still resent her for a lot of things that she did growing up, but I've I'm at the age now where I understand to why it did happen. But what makes it more tough is my mum was uh, told she has brain damage last year and it's really affected a dude. Like she went from working in college for 20 years, teaching students. Um, now she can't even hold out a job in a charity shop because her brain can't function how to use the tills. So it's really tough. It's, it's really difficult. My mum's not the mum she used to be and... I've been trying to do everything that I can within my power to find the the solutions or the support network that she's entitled to, but she's she, she doesn't want to. It's, it's it's a very weird relationship. I resent her from the past. I'm kind of accepting now at this point in my life why she was the way she was because she's probably like me mm. and doesn't even know about it. But I can make things straight with her because. She has brain damage. Mm. Um, it's it's really tough. Really mm. tough. Mm. Let's fast forward a little bit to um, you. Obviously, mentioned before about the jobs and all the different jobs, um, and then we're going to kind of go on then to why you now do what you do. But twenty eight jobs to to anyone listening will sound like a lot, but. We, I think we know from listening to the last sort of half an hour or so of you talking and explaining your story, we're going to probably get a sense of why that is what it is. 
give me some examples of why some of those jobs just didn't last. Oh, I'm trying to think. There's so many of them. Um, because I was lost, I never knew who I was. It meant I never had confidence. I didn't believe in myself because I didn't understand to why my brain acted the way it did. I always assumed I was depressed. I assumed I had some form of chemical imbalance. Um, and this really held me back. So I always applied for your shit entry-level jobs, the really basic jobs that you apply for because you know you're going to get a job. And it, it was just a matter of I'd do this job for a short while and think, this is really boring. This is stressful. Like, I can do more than this, but I never knew what it was. And I, I, I never knew what it was. So it took... Uh, I must have had about 10 jobs from college, not even during school, to, to move into Blackpool. And the first proper job that I enjoyed, it was working for the carvery in Blackpool. But I think that was more so because of my lifestyle. I'd moved into this new place. I'd met a girl who seemed great at the time. I had a good group of friends. I'd gone from people who used to steal to be able to buy a takeaway to people who wanted to go to the gym, to people who was well-educated, to people who were self-employed. And I think that's why at the time that felt like my first best job because I felt accepted. I was in a new place where nobody knew who I was from growing as a kid. Nobody knew my parents. Nobody knew my family. And I was part of this sort of group. So, yeah, I think there's, there's several multiple reasons to why I've never held out a job. One is because of the ADHD side of things. I can never predict how my brain's going to be on a specific day. And two, I get bored really easy. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, did you ever have any experiences of, of management kind of not really understanding you and the way you do things and, and that becoming a, a challenge for them and, and the team? Yeah, um, in in fact, a, a great starting point would be when I lived in Blackpool, I'd, I'd worked as a chef for a couple of years. I got bored, started doing scrap metal. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about this story. It was really bad. <laughs> but then I started to work at the builder's merchants, Travis Perkins. And I remember the manager used to mock me because of how slow I used to be. He used to watch me stack the shelves or he used to watch me walk across really gormlessly. And, and why this was back then is because my brain works like a conveyor belt. It can only scan one item at a time. It's not like a neurotypical who can absorb so much at the same time. So if I've got a put something on the shelf, I'm thinking, which aisle is it on? What is this product I've got? Where does it belong? But in the moment of him watching me, he just thinks I'm this really docile, stupid, slow guy. And it got picked up on and it, it, it became a thing like I was slow. And then I'd moved to a, a, another builder's merchants, which was a different company. It was part of a, a French company called Saint-Gobain. And I started out as the the yard guy, the timber guy. So if you came in and you wanted some timber for your roofing, I'd cut it, I'd load your van up, I'd write you a ticket, and then you'd go and pay for it in the sales office. I was there for like a year, and there was 36 branches with a 1,000-plus staff, 
and everybody got a letter and it was for this customer experience training the company was only going to select 20 people throughout the full company so i thought maybe in me wanting to learn more get bored really easy for i put my name forward well i was the only one from the blackpool branch who did so and i found out there was like 200 applicants there was 20 selected and i was one of them and that was only because they needed one from each particular branch so I'd gone on this three-month intensive training. Hotel was paid for. Food was paid for. It was a new world to me. Um, I had a car on hire. But when I attended the training, I was the yard guy. There was assistant managers. There was general managers. There was operational directors. There was analysts. And then there's me, the guy who cuts timber. So we'd been on this three-month intensive program and we thought it was just to learn about customer experience but when we get to the end of it the company is going to create a new team of four people called the customer experience team and we was told right at the end we thought oh we was all buzzing we'd learned this new stuff like there's only four people going to be selected i thought well it ain't me because i'm the yard guy like there's managers in here who are buzzing to get this role half of the group applied for this role um and half of us had interviews i got the job wow. but during my interview I, I was told i was really smart my brain worked in unique ways i had this sort of big picture approach but during my interview they, they kept saying to me like why are you so anxious you can't look at me in the eye like even on this podcast you'll notice i look down a lot and it's because I can't do two things at once. I can't look at a camera or at your face and think about what I need to say. And I remember at the time, like looking at them in the eyes and I had this sort of feel of like anxiety because my brain couldn't do two things at once. It wasn't the fact that I lacked confidence or I was anxious. It was like my, my brain was having this reaction of, trying to focus in someone's eyes but accumulate all these thoughts from a fast acting mm. brain and i can't do it so i have to be like like this and it got brought up a few times uh, in fact every time i had a, a manager's meeting and within that role i was there for like six months and because maybe a little bit longer 10 months but because i didn't understand who i was and i wasn't properly managed and people had this sort of illusion that I just lacked confidence. I was never put into a role that, you know, matches my skill set. So I ended up getting paid out to leave the company. So that mocks my confidence. You know, I've gone from this yard guy to going through this crazy process, being up against managers. And I got the role because of how unique my mind was, but I was never managed in a way that accommodated my differences but I didn't know what my differences was I couldn't say like hey I've been diagnosed with autism and ADHD this is why I am the way I am I didn't know any of that I was confused I guess it, there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh, criticism of management that goes around on social media for not understanding people um for not embracing people's differences and kind of um bringing people into an organization that are very diverse, that can create, uh, you know, different opportunities. But I, listening to you there, something kind of struck me. I don't think it's all the management's fault. 
because very often, as you've just rightly said, the individual doesn't even know how to process their own mind and their own thoughts. So really, what chance has a management team got? I think the criticism is is justified if it's a case of they're not trying to understand people and, and, and how diverse they are and, and what differences they bring. That's one thing. But actually being able to nail it is, as you've quite rightly said, is almost an impossible task at individual level. It is, but on the the other side of the scale, my I don't call him little brother now because he's massive, but he's nineteen years old and he's completely different to me. He knew what he wanted to do, but he knew he was autistic from a younger age. And me and him had spoke about it quite a lot. I mean, even when he'd left college, I had him on LinkedIn. We was on like um, Zoom call podcasts, but he made it very clear on LinkedIn in his about section that he has Asperger's and that his skill set lies within numbers, patterns, mm. logic. And we we sort of created this content strategy of, right, dude, what you're going to do is share stories that relate to your unique differentness. Um, so he, he told stories about when he was a kid and granddad would walk into school and he would remember all the registration plate numbers on the cars. Or he would tell stories about how he knew even at a young age, like all the positions in the football league, what points, what teams were on. And basically what had happened is on LinkedIn, people knew Callum for this guy who loved numbers. He was looking to be an accountant and he was different. And he'd applied for a role in Blackburn, did see in his LinkedIn. Four people got accepted for the job. Three of them had gone through uni. It was only Callum who had gone through college. Did LinkedIn have a contributing factor? 100%. And why was that? Because he shared his differences. But he's gone into that workplace now and management will know he's different. They'll understand, you know, like he does He does present himself very well, but you can tell he's on the spectrum. Um, but he's managed completely different. They, they, they know he's got Asperger's. Mm. What, what I think is the difference with that story is that he had you in his corner that kind of knew a the advantages of of sharing on social media and being honest about where you're at and your own skills and then the value they bring um but also you'd been there you'd done it and he kind of almost had that hand to hold through the process i i think where people struggle with social media and, and we get it with the clients that we work with is I haven't got the confidence to start because no one in their circle is doing it either. So they, they kind of, they, they don't know how to start, hence why they come to, to people like us. Um, d- when you see uh, the, the the advantage that or the, the benefits that he's had of starting on social media and being that honest, is that something that you go out and tell other people and, and you tell that story and, and does it does it help? Does it inspire people? It does, but I, I, I don't speak about autism anymore. I, I used to, um, but that story in itself proves the power of social media, but it also proves the power of, I hate using the word authenticity, but presenting yourself in the best light saying, hey, these are my differences. It's kind of like when you're qualifying somebody who you want to work or you know who, who you might be working with, but what you're doing there is 
you're putting all the right information out. And if there was an accountancy practice who needed a trainee or an employee, but they, they saw that Callum's autistic and that was a red flag for them, well, he's, he's overcoming that barrier straight away. He's only attracting the right fit from words go. But I've like neurodiversity to one side here. I've helped six people get jobs on LinkedIn and it all starts with sharing who they are and what they're, they're, they're trying to achieve and sharing relatable content that ties in them as a person and what what the goal is. I've, I've helped that many people um, and it just shows the power of social media. You know this yourself, dude. You, like, How many relationships have you formed? How many clients are you now working with I've met the most incredible people in my life from this platform. Mm. And half yeah. of them I've never met in person. But I'd yeah. much rather jump on a Zoom call than meet up with one of the old boys down the pub to talk about irrelevant nonsense. Mm. Um, you know, my Emma always says to me, like, oh, it must be hard, you're so isolated. I'm like, no, I've got incredible people in my life. I mean, yeah, you know, you look at me from a bird's eye view, I'm just sat here in my office all day staring at a screen, but the stuff that's going on in my world, in my brain, I'm connecting with incredible people, whether that be clients, friends, mentors, guides. Mm. Yeah, so I know I went on a bit of a mad one there, but hey, ADHD. It is an incredible platform, and it's been the the, the kind of thing that's really changed my my life since I've been on it since 2019 and it's allowed me to start a business and and work with some incredible people that that ties me into the final kind of piece of the puzzle with you and that is what you're doing now because when I first saw your banners um I was just like no no one else is doing this well certainly not in my circle anyway no one is is kind of demonstrating the not only the skill to be able to create what you're creating in terms of the visual effect, but also the purpose behind it. No one's actually going out and saying, this is the power of branding. This is the power of that shop front, that real estate that's free. You know, it's not free because I have to pay you to do it, but it's free in the sense that LinkedIn aren't charging you to have that account. Let's actually make the most of it. What... What was it that, A, where did you pick up those skills? And what was it that made you kind of say, there's an, there's an opportunity here, there's a gap, I need to fill that? So it, it all happened by accident. I mean, in, in terms of design, I've always enjoyed it. I've never been like a full-time designer, but when I've worked for corporate companies, I was the guy who'd put like PowerPoint presentations together because I just loved the visual. It, to me, in my head, design is problem solving. It's how can we present this person in the best light with a combination of fonts, typography, colors, and visuals. That's all it is. It's problem solving to me. But I fell into it by accident because I was actually a car sales exec for Volkswagen in Leamington Spa when I'd moved down to Ulster in Warwickshire in, when was it? It was January 2020. I'd started my job there, but this is this was my fourth dealership now, and I knew car sales wasn't for me. As much as I loved cars, 
it's an autistic's worst nightmare. You know, there's a customer on the pitch and you've got your manager in a dealership screaming, go and speak to him, you're doing nothing. And you being the autistic you are, think, well, I fucking hate small talk, so what do I say about it? Like, hey, what car do you want to buy? (laughs) I couldn't... I hated it. I hated the, the every month, the sales leadership boards reset and he was up against the other extroverted guys who could, like, snell flipping snow to an Eskimo but I loved cars and it got to a point where I thought you know what this isn't for me like 60 70 hour work weeks every weekend and when I moved down to Leamington Spa I was this kid who grew up on a council estate yet everybody's dad so all the guys who I worked with their dads were millionaires the area that I worked in was affluent like people would come in like oh yes how are you doing sir and I'd just be like, yeah, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> and I, I just didn't fit in. And I, I thought, I need to get out of this. So I'd, I'd, I'd been for a few secret um, interviews without saying anything. There was a, an electronic, uh, electrical engineering role in, in, in Redditch. Um, I really got on with the family. I was pretty much banked the job. And this was just through prep that I did in my interview uh, the receptionist rang me up. She was like, oh, it's looking good. I was absolutely buzzing. Then I was told that a guy who's worked in the warehouse for 20 years applied for the role internally. And because he knows everything about the products, he'd got the role. Um, so I was back to square once. I thought the only thing that's keeping me in the dealership here is the fact that I've got a company car. If I get my own car... I can just have a little bit of time out. I had money in the bank and and find a new job. So 1st of March, I bought my own car, 2017 VW Passat. It was like a two-litre manual white, blue motion. Um, I had it for three days, and I was driving to work, never had an accident. And because at this point, I never knew I was autistic, I never knew I had ADHD, I never knew I was dyslexic, I never knew I had um, alexithemia, I just thought why do I feel like this on on the way to work every single day so I've been doing the Wim Hof breathing exercise on the way to work for a couple of weeks but on this particular day I don't know if you've ever done Wim Hof breathing but it's you 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 breathe in and out 30 times like really powerful like like this and on your last exhale you hold your breath for as long as you can And then at the end of it, when you finally breathe out, you feel like you've just taken some form of drug that makes you feel like euphoric. Um, So on this particular day, I'd done the breathing and I was doing 70 on the dual carriageway. And the next thing, I wake up in the farmer's field. um, Some guy trying to open my door, but it was crushed. He couldn't open it. And I'm thinking, how the hell has this happened? But I made myself pass out. So what I've actually done, I've passed out at 70 on a dual carriageway. I've cr- on a left bend, but I've carried straight on. I've missed an oncoming truck by a couple of seconds, a tree by a meter, and I've gone through like fencing and hedging. All, all four wheels have come off the ground and I've landed in a flipping cauliflower field. Well, it wasn't a cauliflower field. And I, I've walked up... And I felt great. I felt euphoric. I'd just like done this Wim Hof breathing exercise and I passed out. I felt incredible, but I was so confused. 
the guy who was behind me in the van was the guy trying to open my door and he said to me what what's just fucking happened he said i literally thought you was trying to kill yourself i thought you was trying to commit suicide and i said no i passed out now in that moment i didn't want to say that i'd done a, a wim hof breathing exercise because so much was going on in my head i didn't know what it would do with my insurance all this sort of crap so cut a long story short i went to hospital i acted like i just passed out they'd done every form of test on me oh this is incredible you've got the resting heart rate of an athlete and i'm thinking yeah no wonder why i've been doing like this breathing exercise for weeks now um but it can't make sense like your your blood's fine your heart's fine what we're going to have to do is like surgically implant a device uh, in your chest to monitor your heart rate. So I've still got it now, dude, in my chest. Um, <laughs> it's the size of a USB. I scan it in every week. And I'm thinking I don't even need to do this because I know to why I passed out. But what that meant is I had my license medically revoked. You've probably seen on LinkedIn what should have been six months was over two years. I had to give my ticket in at work, so I was off the books, and then COVID came about. So I begged for them. I knew they could have put me back on the books and given me furlough, and I begged for it because I was too proud to claim any benefits, and they declined it. So I started offering LinkedIn banners for 10 quid, and it, it at the time, it was never intended to be a business. It was a time filler. It gave me a sense of purpose um like i remember the first couple of banners would take me two three days like i was earning like less than five quid a day and by the time <laughs> you included the software and the electric and the, the super noodle sandwiches i was eating because i was skin i thought i i'm i'm earning minus here this is bad um and it stemmed from there i'd i'd never worked in photoshop before um you got to think how much time i had then and because of the ADHD, when you learn something new, you get hyper-focused to it. And I was waking up at 7 in the morning and I was 12 at night, Photoshop, tutorial, boom, boom, typography, let's learn about kerning, let's learn about spacing, all this sort of stuff. Let's learn about like main fonts to use in design. And it got to a point where banners became better and better. But what I found over the course of time is I enjoyed marketing more than design i enjoyed putting the right words out there on the platform somebody reaching out me taking them through a sales qualifying process like them going from like oh how much to yeah i'd love to work with you and what i've enjoyed the most is what i've learned within business you know i used to do five calls five zoom calls every day I used to take payment last, I used to chase payment, I used to charge little, and it got to the point where people was landing in my DMs from around the globe saying, I'd love to work with you. I wasn't jumping on Zoom calls, I was taking payment first. And then that evolved, the more that I'd work, worked with my mentor and spent time learning in the background, it became self-apparent to me that it's more than just the banner now. Like back then it was about the banner because that's what I believed. But the more I understood about marketing, science, psychology, copywriting, you know yourself, it's the full LinkedIn landing page. It, it, it should be, it should act like a, an effective sales letter from the banner all the way down to the about section, prompting, prompting people to take action. But then when I thought about the bigger picture, 
it's more than the profile. It's about your content as well. What people are looking at your profile because of the content that you're putting out. So that's the space that I'm in right now. So we've got a team of three of us. Um, I'm the sort of marketeer. I help a little bit on the design side, but I've got a direct response copywriter. I've got a guy who can do design and sort of video editing. But it's about piecing it all together. Like, for example, well, when we sell the full profile revamp package now, we've got about six on the go. At the end of it, I overlook their content in great detail. I give them like a 30-minute video breakdown to why probably ideal clients are not checking out the profile because it's to do with the content. Now, this will evolve over time, but, yeah, that's my journey from – car salesman to car crash to five pound banners to chasing payments to attracting time wasters to working 80 hours a week to earning more now but being more relaxed about it like giving these guys good time um yeah in a nutshell we've been on for an hour which is crazy um because i feel like we've we've got a a real as you would say snapshot of life um but we've kind of gone through each stage of it. And I think it's been, an for me, it's been an inspiring story. I love what you're doing now. Um, I look, every time you put a new banner out, I'm all like, you don't do it as often anymore, sort of showing the banner side of things, probably because, as you said, the business has evolved. But um, I always look at them and think, do you know what? Because I appreciate it, because I went to art college for three years. I've always kind of been quite into design and, and making things look nice which is why I probably talk about doing more polished video production as opposed to just quick selfie videos that obviously most people do. So, but you know, both work, both have their purpose. But the the journey for me is inspiring. I think what you've achieved, um, what you now do makes complete sense. I think a lot of people listening to this will resonate um and and the journey will inspire a lot of people as well i'll, I'll be honest there because it certainly inspires me um if people want to get hold of you what's the best way it depends for what reason i mean predominantly this podcast has been about my indifferences if, if, if people feel like they can relate you know i i always talk to new or diverse people reach out to me on linkedin now if it's regarding what i do in terms of transforming LinkedIn profiles in, into pages that attract clients and, and giving you an overview of your content. The two most important things on LinkedIn, either check out my website, socialrevamp.com or send me a DM. Um, I guess there's two different call to actions there depending on, on, on what people are after. But quickly before we wrap this up, I can't believe it's 59 minutes already. Now, my journey has been inspiring many people say that but i still struggle now massively on a day-to-day -day basis and i know we didn't touch on dyslexia and alexithymia but the combination of everything means that probably two days out of the week i'm in the flow i'm on top of stuff but the remaining five days of the week I'm constantly distracted. The TV analogy that I used earlier, it's like somebody else has control of my brain. And now you can imagine like 80% of your week that happening is very frustrating. So I I was, um, I've been trying to fight for meds to trial them out with my GP. 
he sort of approved, but the place in Coventry declined, which is frustrating. So I've got some medication coming over from India. So I'll let you know how it goes, dude. Hopefully I turn into Bradley Cooper from Limitless. <laughs> I think um, we had Chris Williams on the podcast last week. And we've already agreed that Chris Chris's story needs a part two. Um, and I very much think that yours needs a part two as well. Because um, I think it, it, it's there's more to be discussed. Um, so we will... We will leave at that we're on that cliffhanger and say that part two will be coming very soon. Um, Danny, thanks so much for giving up your time today, mate. It's been a huge pleasure, um, and um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll schedule part two very soon. I'm I'm glad we've spoke before we wrap it up as well because I was saying to my Emma last night. I said like Andy's a good guy, but I've never spoke to him properly on a Zoom. And I said sometimes we've had like um, maybe with with disagreed a little bit with content but i said i want to speak to the guy but i don't know what to expect but yeah approved by the dan um <laughs> well i'll take that i'll take that and run with it awesome well i appreciate your time as well it's, it's been nice catching up i'm not gonna lie i'm busting for a wee so <laughs> cool thank you mate